And just across the board, if you think about these skills and think back to college, did anyone sit you down and teach you? Maybe you took a class on negotiations. Maybe a professor spent five minutes saying, you're going to be working in teams and let me teach you a few tips about teamwork. Great, five minutes in a four-year college career. So we really have not addressed these skills. And it kills me because we've all heard about these. How many times have you heard someone say networking is so important? We've heard this for years. Well, if everyone tells us it's so important, why did no one stop to teach it to us? Welcome in, boys and girls, to another episode of the Free Retiree Show. I'm your host, wealth manager, Lee Michael Murphy, and I'm alongside interview coach and Silicon Valley vet, Sergio Patterson. You keep going with the Sergio, but it's fine. It's fine. It's the way you Uh, pronounce it. What is up, everyone? That's what my mom calls me. And the only attorney that it's acceptable to like, Matthew McElroy. What is up? Welcome into a career advancement edition of the Free Retiree Show. For today's episode, we're going to be discussing the importance of having soft skills in the workplace. In a society that puts a ton of weight on going to school, getting good grades, at the end of it, do those collegiate accomplishments really set you up to succeed in your career? And are they a great indicator of how well you do once you enter the workforce? According to LinkedIn Global Talent Trends, 92% of talent acquisition professionals reported that soft skills are equally or more important than hard skills. And 89% said that when a new hire doesn't work out, it's because they lacked critical soft skills. We're talking about people with skills like social communication, character, personality traits, emotional intelligence, and just the stuff that makes people good at their job and a joy to work with in the organization. Now, Serge, I know you and I have talked about this before, but what is your thoughts on people that come from these prestigious colleges and think they know everything? And then sometimes they just lack those really important soft skills. What's been your experience with those? Yeah, it's a good question. I think having been in Silicon Valley for the last 10-ish years, you can meet some super smart people who are really good at coding or really good at whatever hard skill you want to talk about. But to get anything done at any organization, you need to have solid soft skills to, because you can't do anything on your own, right? Like you need to know how to communicate. You need to know how to bring people together to get towards like a common goal. So I'd argue that what I'm seeing right now is soft skills are more important. Hard skills are important, but when we, we start thinking about launching new products, really bringing organizations together, soft skills are, are kind of taking over. And Maddie, you're the attorney and a lot of smart attorneys out there that probably went to a lot of prestigious schools. What's your thoughts on this topic? Oh, yeah, I got a lot of thoughts. <laughs> you know, I get, I get attorneys that come from great schools like Hastings or USF or USC, and, but they've never practiced, right? And so they'll come in and they just have these horrible entitlement issues. They think, oh, I passed the bar exam. I went through law school. Give me all this money now because I'm a lawyer. And it's like, They have no real clue how to practice law and soft skills are such a a critical part of it. And I think the real power that, I mean, I think it kind of equates across almost any job is the soft skills is the ability to collaborate. And I think that's a huge soft skill and collaboration is such a, a, I think it's such a powerful thing in almost any work environment. And and it's not, it's probably not used enough, but I think that's where soft skills would come in. 
Definitely. So for today's episode, we have Mark Hirschberg, and he is a wonderful resource. He's an MIT instructor, CTO, author of the Career Toolkit, Essential Skills for Success That No One Taught You. And he's spent a lot of time building startups. He spent 20 years teaching at MIT. He's got over a dozen patents. I was on the board of a couple nonprofits. And he's really dedicated his career to helping launch ventures and help launch people into areas of success. And on top of all these wonderful accolades, one thing I'm excited to ask Mark about is he is also a top ranked ballroom dancer. And now he lives in New York. But ballroom dancing, guys, any questions on ballroom dancing? I, I'm a terrible dancer. Yeah, I, I, love, I, I got the coordination. I have some questions because <laughs> that's what I was thinking. I think we were all terrible dancers, yeah. but maybe we can ask Mark also on some good dance tips. So maybe you're not into the career and getting to that next level. If you want to be an excellent ballroom dancer, we'll also ask Mark on that too. So we're gonna take a quick break, but when we come back, we're gonna be sitting down with Mark Hirschberg. Stay tuned. Welcome back into the Free Retiree Show. We are sitting down with Mark Hirschberg. Mark, how are you doing this morning? Doing great. Thanks for having me on the show today. Hey, it's a pleasure to have you. I know that you are all about the soft skills and development, but man, the guys and I, we just want to know, ballroom dancing? How did that, how? Ballroom dancing, it's one of the best things I did in my life. I went to MIT, and what most people don't know is MIT actually has a fantastic sports program. Now, while mm -hmm. many of our sports are D3, we do have a few D1, we also have programs like our ballroom dance team. It's not NCAA, but we have produced some of the top ballroom dancers in the country. And when I was competing in the late 90s and early 2000s, we were arguably one of the top ballroom dance teams in the U.S., I got brought into it because the woman I was dating at the time decided she wanted to join and compete in ballroom dancing, which apparently meant I also had decided I wanted to compete in ballroom dancing. But I'm very glad she made that decision for me. What's the trick to be a good ballroom dancer? I've seen Sergio dance. He does this like twerking thing when he starts dancing. He starts twerking. He's a big fan of twerking. Matt, I mean, obviously, just look at him. There's, there's no rhythm. But what's the skill? That you I, need to get. I had no rhythm when I first started. Ballroom is very structured. But here's the two things to remember when ballroom dancing. First, it's true. Dance like no one's watching. Because if you hold yourself back, oh. if you're saying, oh, I'm worried about how people are going to look at me, That's it's good. not going to work. It's just like anything else we do in life. You just have to go for it and be committed. I'd also say if that sounds scary, dancing is just walking to the beat. If you are just stepping and you're generally with the beat, you're probably starting to dance and you're going to look good. Amazing advice. I'm Matt McElroy. He's got a wedding coming up. So I'm, I'm hoping these words are soaking in because I will be recording you on your dance and all that stuff. And I will play it for many years to your demise. So well, we haven't actually set a date yet because all the, the crazy COVID stuff. But uh, yeah, I have been asked to take classes for dancing. <laughs> so it will be happening. Yes. Thinking back, <laughs> I wish I would have taken ballroom classes because I, I did not know what I was doing on the dance floor. Bad. Yeah, Matt, just when you go out, do a simple routine, be relaxed, and just think of it like walking to the beat, and you're going to be fantastic. 
Yeah, I think it's the key word you said there for me is going to be simple. <laughs> <laughs> so, Mark, thank you for coming on our show today. We want to talk about the soft skills. And like I said in the intro, it's one of these things that society, it, we only look at the grades, where you went to school, and then it feel like it's so many levels when we come out of school, we're just not prepared. It's all the stuff that they never taught us in school. So tell us about like what you're doing and how people can work on developing those soft skills that we might've never learned while we were in college. Years ago, I recognized I needed to develop these skills in myself. And as I was learning them, recognized that these aren't just for executives. This is for everyone. From your first day out of school, these skills, leadership, negotiation, networking, communication, they're going to help you. Even if you say, I don't want to be a manager. I don't want to be an executive. I want to stay as an individual contributor. These skills are still going to be vitally important for your career. And as I was developing these training programs, MIT had gotten very similar feedback. The companies who tend to come and hire our students, which range from big tech and law and uh, finance, as well as early stage startups, they all said, we can't find these skills not just in your students, but across the board, in other students, in mid-career professionals, we can't find these skills. So we created this program at MIT. We refer to it as MIT's Career Success Accelerator, where we expose our students to these skills early in their academic careers and help get them on the right path for them to continue to develop the skills while at MIT and beyond. And I took a lot of the lessons from there, a lot of things I've learned from teaching over the past 20 years and put it into the book. I think it's interesting because you would think at the MITs of the world that the hard skills are so important, but it's like a rude awakening when they're first day at Google and they're like, wait, I have to communicate with people and like to actually get anything done or get influence or get buy-in for a project. One thing I've learned time and again working in the tech world is that good technology with bad marketing loses out to bad technology with good marketing. You could have a brilliant product, but if no one's heard of it, it's not going anywhere. But how many crappy products have we seen, but they just knew how to market it? And if we think about that internally, even if you have the best ideas, you really have those quant skills or whatever it is, you say, oh, I know how to solve this problem. But if you can't communicate that, if you can't get buy-in from other people, you're going to lose out to those mediocre ideas from your peers that just know how to market it, how to get the buy-in from other folks. So we have to think about supplementing our problem-solving skills with these relationship-based skills. Do you see that a lot of people because of COVID and having to work at home and kind of losing some of these social experiences that we take for granted, do you feel like people are starting to maybe lose some of their soft skills that they had or they're starting to get rusty and have to work on them? I suspect so. I haven't seen data on that. I have seen articles in the dating world that people are afraid to go back out on dates because they said, I haven't been on a date in forever. And so I think it's the same reasoning of, I haven't been in office with other people. And so we, we are probably at least atrophying a bit. It will come back to us, but I'm sure that's part of it. And certainly while we are remote, we have to adjust a little about how we interact. And this is something, unfortunately, not everyone has done well. So consider within your office, there's a certain flow to the office. There are the water cooler conversations or the conversations that happen when I'm just sitting next to you, we're at the meeting a couple minutes early, and so we're just chatting. And sometimes it's just 
standard kind of talking about your life, nothing really meaningful to the company. Sometimes you get an insight. Oh, I didn't realize that customer is now doing this. Okay, I'm so glad you told me. We're not getting those conversations anymore because now our communication is a lot more directed. Oh, we're going to sit down for a Zoom meeting. Okay, thanks. I want to get off this as soon as possible. So we're losing some of that kind of spontaneous communication that's unplanned. And people haven't adjusted well to that. When we go back to the office, it's not clear if we'll pick that up again or in what way. So I do think there's definitely been some changes, not sufficient changes, and there will need to be more changes when we go back. And kind of piggyback on what you said, do you think that there's also, it would almost make sense that there's also like a little bit of a a loss of rapport between the relationships of the coworkers that just because they don't have that spontaneous communication and it's only these, you know, really directed conversations through Zoom? A hundred percent, especially we've seen lots of people change jobs, certainly not the beginning of the pandemic, but now we've seen a lot more happening this year into the fall. And when you join a company and it's a bunch of people on Zoom and you haven't spent time in person with them, that's really going to impact the dynamics of you with them, with the whole team. So imagine if the four of us joined a team and you three have known each other for years and hi, I'm just some guy you're seeing on the screen once in a while. I'm not going to have the same relationship. I'm not going to fit into the team as well as the three of you. And that's something we're going to have to address on the team. Yeah, I'm like 100% with you there. I actually started at a new company. I've been virtual the whole time. So I haven't met anyone in person. So I think it's an interesting dynamic that we're all going through right now. That It's going to be tricky, I think, once the offices start opening and people have the home environments that they've been working from and then trying to go back to the office. It's crazy. It's a big change in uh, Silicon Valley for sure. It's probably going to be rough on some people, I would imagine. Yeah. I was going to say long term, I think there's going to be a great opportunity for a reset This is a once every hundred years change in how we do labor. But anytime you have a massive change, there's always disruption in the short term. So Mark, you've worked with a lot of students. You're very experienced in this space. In your experience, what is the common things that the students that are graduating lack when it comes to entering the workforce? What's the most common ones you you see that the school system failed them or didn't prepare them for? It really is all these skills. And let me run through what they are because these skills aren't, hey, this is what Mark thinks. This is feedback we've gotten from companies saying, this is what we can't find. So the 10 skills I focus on in the book, first section, careers, how to create and execute a career plan, how to work effectively in your office, skills like managing your manager, understanding the corporate culture and how you're delivering value how to interview. Now, that one is tricky because we think, well, wait, we've all learned how to interview. In fact, colleges teach us this, but how to be an interviewer, because many of us, as we go into our careers, even a couple years in, we're interviewing other candidates. If we don't know how to effectively do that, we're not going to hire the right people for our teams. The second section, leadership and management. So, the fundamentals of leadership. Management, I break down into people management and process management. And then the third section, the skills that are really desired by companies, communication, networking, negotiation, and ethics. And just across the board, if you think about these skills and think back to college, did anyone sit you down and teach you? Maybe you took a class on negotiations. Maybe a professor spent five minutes saying, you're going to be working in teams and let me teach you a few tips about teamwork. 
great five minutes in a four-year college career. So we really have not addressed these skills. And it kills me because we've all heard about these. How many times have you heard someone say networking is so important? We've heard this for years. Well, if everyone tells us it's so important, why did no one stop to teach it to us? Yeah, you can say the same concept about money and finance. It's, you know, there's just not enough education in, the, in our school systems for that kind of, for those topics. Absolutely. I think every middle school should be starting to teach financial literacy. 100%, especially because of the decisions that they have to make in choosing colleges and how to finance that and all that stuff. They didn't really have a grasp on it. Mark, do you see any other programs like the Career Success Accelerator? Is that happening at more campuses now other than just MIT? A tiny bit in different ways. And I really have been encouraging MIT that we should expand this program. I would love other schools to pick it up. Obviously, when you're an academic institution like MIT, we're not trying to say, oh, no, this is ours. In fact, MIT pioneered open courseware. We've been giving away our content for years. I do know the University of Michigan. They have started a program where their engineering students have to take certain courses that are on topics like this, on career planning. I think they've included some financial literacy and other professional and adulting skills. So they have one course for that. We're seeing pockets of maybe a course for that. Unfortunately, simply giving students lectures, I don't think is sufficient. It's a good start and it's better than what we've been doing, but we have to do a little more in-depth. And I'm going to share one great way, whether you're in school or you're in the workplace, a great way to approach this is to create peer learning groups. This is how we teach at MIT. This is how top business schools teach these skills. Because you can read a book like mine or other wonderful books, but it's kind of like reading a book on basketball. You're like, okay, great. I understand the rules of basketball. Are you ready to go and play and be a top athlete? Of course not. You actually have to go out. You have to drill. You have to scrimmage. You have to play some games. Reading might be a good first step, but you've got to practice it. And so in these reading groups, what you want to do is you want to say, okay, we're going to get together. And I recommend groups of about six to eight people, but there are ways you can scale it up. You want to then say, we're going to say, read this section of a book. We're going to read these 10 pages about networking. And we're going to chat and say, oh, this is really interesting. Hey, just thinking I'm going to try this technique. Say, oh, that's good. Here's a technique I've used in the past. And we're going to learn from each other. Or if you have a leadership challenge, I can give you my advice from having been in a similar challenge, or I can get your advice when I'm stuck in a problem. And so this is our way of scrimmaging because there typically isn't some leadership practice, but you can replicate some of that when you have these discussions with other people. I actually have a free download on my website for how you can create these programs at your organization. And you can use my book, certainly, but look, here's the secret. If you don't want to use my book, use a different book. Use one of the many others I recommend. Use your favorite leadership or networking or negotiation book. Use great podcasts like this one. It doesn't have to be a book. Listen to this podcast every week and discuss it in your group. The key point is as we learn these skills, it's not like learning accounting where you say memorize these three rules because there's no three rules for leadership. You want to say, let's talk about this idea and discuss it as a group. And that's how you're really going to develop much faster is by using your peers and for this peer learning. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. 
and like it, it, when, when in practicing law we kind of like we say we refer to that like as our superpower is the collaboration like it, every time that we collaborate with other lawyers and have like a group think it, the, the, the final product just is on another level and and i feel like that that could translate to anything any you could take that approach to any type of thing it doesn't just have to be law or school or anything collaboration is is just really a powerful thing exactly and many companies if you think about it, companies normally spend a couple thousand dollars to send you to maybe a two-day training class. Well, this costs them nothing. It's saying, look, take an hour every other week and have this discussion. There is zero cost to them, and it engages employees across the board. It's a win for the company on multiple levels. Mark, one question I have is, how do people know when they lack the soft skills? So in my experience, I've worked with some people that went to prestigious schools and they're very smart and intelligent, but they're the last person in the room that knows that they lack soft skills. So like, what are ways that people can be more self-aware that, Hey, this is something we need to work on. You're talking to one of those people because when I came out of (laughs) MIT, I was a pretty smart guy and certainly had good STEM skills. And quickly I started to run into problems. And one reason we face this is because the type of work we do in college, work tends to be pretty individualistic. And yes, colleges are switching to, oh, we want more team projects, but that's still the exception, not the rule. If you think about most of what you do in college, it's writing papers or doing problem sets. If you're in a STEM field, it's taking tests. These are all individual and you're just getting the right answers. The more right answers, the more you win. It doesn't matter if people like you or want to work with you. It's just, did you get the right answers? When we get into the office place, right answers are still valued. But if you're finding people aren't listening to me or wait, why did we go with his idea? That's not as good as mine. Or you're having trouble connecting to your peers. People aren't wanting to engage with you as much as they are with other people. These are some of the signs that maybe you need to work on some of these relationship-based skills. One technique, by the way, you can use, this comes from my friend, Dory Clark. She's written a number of great books, including Reinventing You. She said, here's what you do. Go to all your peers and say, can you give me three adjectives that describe me? Just three adjectives. And so you go to a number of people and you get those adjectives. And then you put them all together and you see, are there patterns? So one thing that was clear to me early, I didn't formally do this, but I definitely noticed some feedback, logical or intelligent, quantitative, those were all very strong attributes. No one ever wondered, oh, is this too technical for Mark? I definitely was perceived as someone who is very technical and very smart in that area, but no one was saying team player or leader. And so you can recognize, well, okay, I'm good here, but I'm not hearing leader. And if, as you're talking to your manager about that job you want, that promotion you want to get to, where you need to be a leader, your manager might say, we have to work on your leadership skills. Well, if you're not hearing leader, if you're not hearing the the adjectives and attributes that align to the skills you need for that next job, that's an indication that you have a shortcoming in your skill set, and that's where you need to work. Wow, that's great advice. Yeah. I mean, 100%. that's kind of scary though, right? You say, hey, write this write this on the piece of paper. I mean, I might cry myself to sleep after I read all the pieces of paper, but man, 
I guess that's a very I think me and Lee should do this exercise for I mean, I think, me and Sergio should I, do this exercise. My, for if I get my anonymous <laughs> piece of paper and it says douchebag, I know it's Matt that wrote it. One, one thing I've done as a manager, I do something similar. When I join a company and I'm in charge of a team, I want to get quick feedback. 30, 60 days in, I want to make sure things are going well. And yes, I could ask the CEO, although honestly, most CEOs say, oh, yeah, yeah, you're doing fine. They really, unfortunately, don't engage. But I certainly want to make sure I'm doing well with my team. Now, it's a lot harder to get honest feedback from the team. So what I do is I get a volunteer from the team and I might say, okay, Lee, great. You volunteered. Thank you. Here's what we're going to do. Everyone, give your feedback on me to Lee. Because now everyone knows you can say Mark is a jerk. I won't know because you're handing it to Lee and Lee and you trust Lee that he's not going to say, hey, this is from Matt, right? So <laughs> it comes from Lee and Lee can also put in he's a jerk because he knows it's in this anonymous pool. And I don't know if it's from him or from someone else. And so you can, if you're not comfortable asking people directly, you could just ask one person, say, hey, everyone, can you go to this one teammate and give her all the feedback? She's going to collect it and give it to me. And this way, I'm not going to know it's from you. You could ask HR if they're going to do something like this. They might be able to do it for the whole team or the whole organization so other people can benefit as well. Hey, Mark, I was curious just to build on what we were talking about with soft skills. For a listener out there who's fresh out of college, super technical, pretty much what you describe yourself as, right? Like that guy or girl who just doesn't think they need to spend the time on soft skills. Like, can you talk to us a little bit about the consequences or ramifications of not focusing on that early in your career? I know you'd mentioned leadership, but what else comes to mind for you if, if you don't pay attention to this? I'm going to give you a wonderful analogy that works very well for this group. This comes from my friend, Professor Charles Leiserson at MIT. He said, let's imagine we're going to do a little math here. Tiny, easy math. Let's imagine a rectangle that's four by 10. You need to increase one of the sides by two units and you want to maximize the area. So do you lengthen the long side or the short side? And feel free to pause this podcast if you need a moment to think about it. I'm not good at math, so I'm already, I'm already lost. Yeah, yeah, you're asking uh, the know. wrong guys. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully you came up with you increase the short side. You have four to six units for 60. Yeah. Okay, great. So what does sixth grade math have to do with our careers? Well, let's think conceptually. Why does it make sense to increase the short side? It's because every unit of length you add to the short side is multiplied by that long side. If you add those units to a long side, it's only multiplied by the short side. So that long side is basically amplifying these other skills. Now, let's think about what this means for us. If you have two skills, let's say you are a brilliant person in whatever field you're in. Maybe it's accounting, maybe it's chemistry, but you are a horrible communicator. We probably all think back to some professor who was presumably brilliant, but a horrible professor. Oh, this is so painful. So if you are deeply brilliant, but you can't communicate well, then as we said before, your ideas aren't going to get out there. People aren't going to listen to you. They're not going to want to engage with you. And so what you are is this long, thin, narrow rectangle. If you focus on your short side, what you're doing is you're increasing your overall area and you get a better return, a better ROI when you focus on these short skills. 
if you just learn to be a slightly better communicator, maybe that means slightly better public speaker. Maybe it means just communicating to people who don't have your technical knowledge. If you're better at networking and just extend your network a little bit, better at negotiating or leading, just getting a little bit better, it's going to have this massive ROI. And of course, we're more than just two skills. This is more than two dimensionals when it comes to us. Mm-hmm. But when you just focus on that one skill and you get so thin and narrow, you don't have a lot of area, a lot of contribution that you can give. So really what you want to do is recognize that the best ROI, the best way to increase your overall area and capability in this model is to focus on some of your short sides. Now I'll note, you do have to continue on that long side. I work in technology. The tech we're using today, that didn't exist 10 years ago. In law, you have to take the CLEs because if you don't, you're out of touch. So yes, work on your long sides too, but don't do so by completely abdicating those short sides. Uh, yeah, I love that. That's love exponential it. development right there. Yeah. And you, I think for most people, they think, well, is it really going to make that big a difference? That right there shows, yeah, it can make a massive difference. Well, let's give an example of how much difference it makes. Let's take negotiations as an example. Suppose you're 25 years old and you have a job offer for $60,000. Instead of taking that job, as is, you say, okay, I've learned to negotiate. I'm going to go back and negotiate $1,000 more. You're going to negotiate for $61,000. That's not a wildly big negotiation. That seems reasonable. If you accept that job and you do nothing else in your life, if you sit in this job for the next 40 years, you just earned $1,000 more for 40 years. One five-minute negotiation and you got $40,000. When have you ever earned $40,000 in five minutes? But of course, you're saying, well, look, I'm not going to sit in that job for 40 years. You're going to have promotions. You're going to have raises. You're going to have other jobs. You're going to negotiate for more than just $1,000. And it's not just going to be money. It's going to be other things as well. By learning to negotiate, by just getting a little bit better, we're not talking about negotiating peace in the Middle East, but just getting a little bit better, you can add tens of thousands even hundreds of thousands of dollars to your lifetime earnings. That's massive. And now here's the secret. Negotiation, that's the easiest to show this because we can say, oh, more money and we can add up the money. No one's going to say, hey, you're a slightly better leader. Here's $1,000 more. Doesn't quite work that way. But by being that slightly better leader, by having that slightly better network, you start to get more opportunities and that's going to accelerate your growth. That will also add hundreds of thousands of dollars to your earnings. It just won't be as direct as here's X dollars more. So all of these skills, just getting that little bit better over your lifetime, as you said, it's exponential growth. It is massive, the return you're going to get. Amazing mindset. That's just great advice. People, they don't think about it like that. And thinking that far ahead, it's huge. And I I think that's what a lot of people, especially when they're just graduating from college, they just don't have that mindset. And I think it's just, they're trying to learn, right? Like it just, I think some people think like, well, maybe it's not worth always being a student or always innovating yourself because you're thinking about the rectangle and you're like, ah, is it worth the effort, the hours that I'm putting in to get that much better? Yes, it is. If you think about it the way you put it, I love that. If you think about how much time does it take to read a single book on negotiations, eight hours, 10 hours. And if you do that, you're going to spend, let's say $30 on a book. 
You're going to spend 10 hours reading it, whatever your hourly rate is. Let's pretend you make $100 an hour. Okay, so that just costs you $800 plus the 30 for the book and then the five minutes for the negotiation. And if you get that $1,000 more, you just earn that money back instantly, plus all the rest of the years where you're going to be using this. You get an immediate return on investment, typically within a year or two for these skills. It's just not within a week or two, but you will get it back quickly. Mark, do you see a big problem with especially these newer grads that are like having these kind of entitlement issues? Like, hey, I got this degree from wherever and I deserve this money and I don't need these soft skills because my degree speaks for itself. I mean, do you see that a common trend now? So having taught for 20 years, I've been teaching sophomores for 20 years, and I've certainly seen the demographic trends. I saw the rise of the millennials. Now we're seeing, I've heard them called zennials. I think the (laughs) the name is still a little to be determined. And we did see some of that with the millennials, the entitlement attitude, the I've been here six months, why haven't I gotten a promotion? Definitely saw some of that. It's not as strong with the next generation. In fact, so far, and granted my experience, it's very anecdotal because I'm looking at a couple hundred sophomores and these are sophomores at MIT. So they're not exactly the average sophomores. Yeah, Yeah, Uh, I'm seeing better collaboration and teamwork. What I've seen so far, and again, it's anecdotal, is this generation says, okay, you know what? We just, we've got big problems. Let's just roll up our sleeves. Let's get it done. Let's figure it out. Good collaboration, teamwork, good commitment to the mission. If you buy into the Strauss-Howe generational theory, I'm leaning towards they are the big problem solver generation. And so far, what I've seen seems to tie into that. Nice. When did you start to, to notice that kind of shift to that, that mindset? In the last maybe two or three years. It, this year, we were teaching virtually, so I didn't get to connect with my students quite as well. But I definitely saw it strongly last year. And again, it could just be that particular year. In fact, one thing MIT does and lots of schools do is each year they kind of change the dials on admissions. Oh, we want people this year who are just more pure quant nerds, or we want people this year who are a little more soft skill based. So it could have even just Mm -hmm. been a swing from the admissions office. I really need to see it over six, seven, eight years. I'm wondering if COVID had a little bit of impact on that because- I think it's humbled everyone with the environment. There's the job market that could play a little part. Mark, I was curious, you, you do some work with nonprofits, right? There's Techie Youth and Plant a Million Corrals. Can you touch on that a little bit? Yeah, I've worked with many great nonprofits over the years. These are two that I'm currently on the board of. Now, Techie Youth, we started, I think, about five, six years ago. COVID, all the time seems to blur. We are looking at risk youth primarily in the New York area, but we're starting to expand this year. So these are kids in the foster care system, kids who sometimes have struggled with law and authority. Many of these students, they're not going to graduate high school. They have little chance of going to college. And so they're destined for minimum wage jobs. By putting them in this program, we began by teaching them basic IT skills. Think help desk. And if we can just get them enough skills that we can get them an internship level job. Now, for those of us who went to college and grad school, you might be thinking, yeah, internship level IT desk doesn't sound great. 
But here's the key. This goes to that little shift, just like we talked about in our careers, how a little bit of a shift makes a big difference. If you are working a minimum wage job, you're just you're struggling each week to get by if something happened. So when Sandy came in, Hurricane Sandy that hit New York about 10 years ago, and these businesses said, you know what, you just you can't come into the office, you can't come into work because we're closed down. Suddenly they lose a week's worth of pay, they're living paycheck to paycheck, huge problem. But if you are working in the IT department of this company, these companies would say, hey, don't come in this week, but we're white collar workers, don't worry, we're still going to pay you. And especially now, many of us can work remote. The fact that they are in this office and they're next to someone more senior who can say, oh, let me show you how to do this. They can continue to grow and to learn. So this small change in their direction, just going from minimum wage to these, maybe not necessarily much more money or any more money, but suddenly you're in a different environment. We put them on a path where they can develop a career. I've done similar work with Streetwise Partners, another wonderful organization. And then the second group, Plant a Million Corals. So Dr. David Vaughn figured out a way to fast grow corals. As some of you might know, the oceans, because they're warming up, a lot of corals are dying. And corals are really, those are the cities of the ocean. Most marine life is found near coral reefs. So if we lose the corals, we're going to just really collapse the ocean ecosystem. What we need to do now, just like plant a million trees said, we're deforesting, we have to fix that. With plant a million corals, we want to repopulate the coral population of the world and really support the ocean's ecosystem. That's awesome. Good work. So, Mark, you've done a lot of work with leadership. I've noticed that you've, you help people go down that path of becoming better leaders. And I think a common problem that people run into is they want to advance in their career and they come out of college. They're very ambitious. The whole world is their oyster. And then you end up hitting these roadblocks and maybe it's external. Maybe it's internal. Probably a lot of the times it's a combination of both, but we plateau. And people, I think for the most part, want to get, want to have the best version of themselves. They want to be great leaders. What does that look like? If you feel like, hey, you've plateaued and you want to become a leader, where do you start looking at uh, in terms of self-reflection and then at the organization? I would begin by doing some self-assessment. Where do I think I'm strong and weak? Getting that feedback. And maybe it's from peers, maybe it's from managers, maybe it's from others. And then also looking to leaders you admire, whether those are leaders on TV, people who you you recognize and follow, whether it's reading biographies, whether it's people in your companies, look at what they do. So let me give you a very concrete example. A lot of people, this is, we're going to talk about whiteboards for a second. A lot of people, when they walk up to the whiteboard, they just kind of start scribbling all over. And my first manager he did this amazing job. His whiteboards always looked so organized and clear. And I just, I knew they were good, but I didn't know what it was. So I started to watch him and thought, what is it that he does? I noticed he did a few things and then I even asked him about it. So he did a few things at the whiteboard. One, he actually used multiple pens. Most people just pick up the marker and that's the marker they write everything with. And that's fine for some things, but maybe if you're saying, let's compare two different choices, but we're going to do one in blue and one in green, or we're going to diagram the system. Let's show the current system. Let's show the proposed changes in a different color. 
right? Very small thing, but makes a diagram much more useful. He also thinks ahead of time about the space on the whiteboard. What am I going to put and where? Instead of just starting in the middle and then cramming things in, he thinks about, and it only takes two or three seconds. Okay, I need to put the diagram. I need to put a list. I need to then have space for comments. How am I going to do this? And he thinks about how he's going to lay it out. So by first recognizing he had certain skills, I couldn't say what they were. I just knew it was better than what I did. And then I started to focus what exactly does he do? And then I even spoke to him about it. I was able to replicate those skills. So when you are thinking about your leadership or really any skills, so we think about what are the things that I do well now? And then as I look at this other leader I admire, I want to break down what is it that this leader does well great advice. and do what you can on your own. You might talk to this leader if it's someone you know or someone in your company. You might even in this peer learning group say, hey, guys, I was just watching Jen give that talk to the whole company where she talked about this new initiative. And I was just blown away. I'm trying to think, what was it? I'm trying to break it down. What did you guys see? And you're going to share your thoughts and insights because especially if it's something I haven't focused on, I might even be blind to what exactly she's doing. So here again, we can use that peer learning group to help us. And once you recognize that gap, once you say, okay, I can do these three things, but here are four others I'm not yet doing well, then you've got your plan over the next whatever time period. I want to work on each one of those four and develop it. Yeah, it's, it makes me want to. It's clear you're a good leader. Thinking back, I, I don't know. Did you envision yourself always leading people, or leading teams? You've been a CTO for quite some time. Has that always been or did it just happen? If you met me when I was in college, you would not have thought of me as a good leader. But there were just things I developed. One thing I learned early on, I remember in the fraternity I was in at MIT, we would have our monthly meeting. And I would always sit there with my laundry list of here's all the things we need to do better. And everyone, they would groan. We used to, we'd pass around the gavel at the end of the meeting where anyone could basically offer talks. And we'd come to me, everyone would groan. It's like, oh, Hirschberg's got his long list of ideas. What I recognized there, there was this one man, he now, he works for the State Department. He is a born diplomat. He wouldn't speak much, but when he would speak, everyone would listen. And one of the things I learned at that point was, okay, I need to talk less because hitting everyone with way too much, they're not going to listen to it. And so it was little things like that. It was also early in my career when I recognized I wanted to be a CTO, I thought about what makes someone a good CTO? I did that kind of assessment. Being a good CTO, chief technology officer, it's not about being the best programmer. And if you think about our career path, wherever you're starting, you might be a software developer, an accountant, a marketer, a chemist, again, whatever you're doing, you say, okay, well, I'm going to do this particular mechanical skill. And if I do it well, I get promoted. I do a little more of it. I do a little more. And you're doing bigger projects and more complex things, but you're doing it at an individual level. You're just doing this skill on a bigger problem. When you switch to being a first-level manager, it changes. It's no longer about you solving the problem bigger, faster, or better than anyone else. It's about you getting the team to solve the problem. That's a very different set of skills. And so we get into this trap of thinking, well, I'm getting success by just doing more of the same, more of this individual skill, but you have to switch what skills you're focused on. I'm not a great software developer anymore. I don't spend a lot of time writing code. I'm pretty rusty. 
but I focus on these other skills. So early on, I said, okay, what are the skills I need? You know what? I don't have great leadership skills. I'm not so good at public speaking. I started working on that in high school. I knew it was bad. Team building, all these other skills, I had to set out and learn them. And so I created my career plan. What skills are going to pick up at what time to get to where I want to go? Love it. I think it's so valuable, especially for our listeners. Yeah, that's great. The, um, it seems like the mindset you have, I'm not sure if you're familiar with growth mindset versus fixed mindset. You are, right? Yes. So you're, are you definitely a big believer in growth mindset? 100%. And I'll share something else. We didn't have those terms when I was growing up, but my mother taught me the concept of internal locus of control versus external locus of control. Are you responsible for where you are going? Now, yes, there are external factors, and that could be your company just went out of business, could be a global pandemic. We know there are external factors that will impact you, and there's nothing I could do about this global pandemic. But how I choose to respond to it, how I prepare for it, what I choose to do in the moment, that is totally under my control. Do I invest in my skills or do I say, uh, you know what, I don't think I'm going to get promoted at this company, right? If you feel like the company is not going to give me this opportunity, it's up to you to say, well, I'm going to either prove them wrong or I'm going to find a different company. So it's taking that control and that growth mindset of I can change wherever I am today, I can change and be something different, presumably better tomorrow. If you don't believe that to me, the fixed mindset is, it reminds me of determinism in religious philosophy of, oh, well, God has set this course for me and therefore I just have to go along and accept whatever comes my way. I am very much a believer in that we can control our own fates. Obviously, there's exceptions on the margin, but we can certainly take control of it. And it's in your hands, what you want to do and where you want to go. The, the research, I believe, for growth mindset came out of Stanford. And let's just say we all believe that you're in control of what you know and how smart uh, you are and how your brain functions. And we want to learn these soft skills. I know you have a way for people to do that. What is your method of how you train these people that want to learn these things? Yeah. So this is where you want to use that peer learning group. And so you can get the, the free download on the resources page of my website you want to create these groups and you can do it. I recommend groups of about six to eight people, but you can also do it if you want larger groups of say 20 people or your company wants to in groups of 50, there's ways to do that. And it's having these discussions. You can supplement that in some ways. It, just having the discussions alone, I think you are going way ahead of everyone else. And remember, it's not about being the best in the world. It's about outrunning everyone you're competing against. So this already is going to put you in the lead. But you can do if you want other types of exercises. For example, with negotiations, there are case studies that are used at business schools and they're sold and you can buy these and we can basically role play. The four of us might be in a negotiation and we're going to you know, all sit, we get our role sheets. I'm the head of finance, you're the head of sales, you're the head of marketing, right? And so we, we have the different roles and different outcomes and we try to negotiate. And that is a practice negotiation that we can do. It's like playing that scrimmage game in sports. So within this learning group, you can do the readings, you can do the discussions. And really, when we talk about what challenge someone's facing in leadership, that is a case study. That's a real case study. 
or we can use one of these third-party case studies. And it's just through this practice and training that we can get better. So yes, read books. Sure, you can read my book, read other books. Love if you do that, but do so in a discussion group because that's where the real learning comes. And whether you use my book, use this podcast, use any other great resource, that's what's going to accelerate your growth. Now, when it comes to the negotiation, is this kind of like the skills of Donald Trump, the, the art of the negotiation? You're fired. Yeah. He has been a horrible negotiator. <laughs> if you look at the history of his deals, it You're is fired. just phenomenally bad. It's saying, hey, you know what? I've been getting 5% returns in the stock market. And yeah, well, Mark, the average returns are 8%. Yeah, but I'm getting five. Well, if you did nothing and just gave it to someone else, you could have gotten eight. So his, if you look at some of the deals, just truly horrible and atrocious. Negotiators also know he, he uses this old style of thinking the only way for me to win is for you to lose. That's what and I that felt is, like his philosophy was. It, it is very much so. That's his philosophy and everything. We see this again and again. Good negotiators know there's this concept of we're trying to divide the pie, but are there ways we can expand the pie? Because if I am getting 60% of the pie, but I expand the pie, so you're getting 40%. If I expand it enough, you might say, well, now you're only getting 20%, but it's such a bigger piece. You're happy with only 20%. Or it might be, right, if on the other side, I'm the person only getting 20%, I went down from 40 to 20%, but the pie is so much bigger. And so mentally, I might say, oh, well, I'm getting a smaller piece now, percent-wise. I'm losing in that sense, but I'm getting a bigger sense overall. And so good negotiators recognize it is about how you expand that pie, how you come up with creative solutions, and make sure the other side feels they are doing well, because if they're not going to enter the deal. Yeah. And then, of course, you want as big a piece as you can for yourself. You are still looking out for your interests, but it's not about, I'm here to screw you. It's about getting the biggest piece I can. And if that means handing you a bigger piece too, I'm happy to do it. It's just really understanding everybody's different perspectives in the negotiation. And like compromise, right? I think with every negotiation, there's got to be some compromise. There, Yes. And so you've hit upon understanding someone else's perspective how to communicate into that perspective. How do I convince you that this piece I'm offering you is better than the piece that you proposed? Because communication skills play into negotiations. And negotiations are a good technique for leaders. All these skills build upon each other. And that's one reason I wrote the book as I did. There's lots of great books on leadership, on negotiations, but putting them together in one book, they can build upon each other and reinforce each other. Mark, where can we get your book? I would love to read it. You can get on Amazon. It's also sold through local bookstores. They might have to order it if it's not in stock. Libraries are now picking up and carrying it. You can go to my website, thecareertoolkitbook.com. And there's a button. If you click the buy button, it's going to show you the different places you can buy it. On the website, you can also get in touch with me, follow me on social media. There's the apps page, and that's going to take you to the Android and iPhone store where you can download the free companion app to the book. That's a good way to help reinforce what you're reading, or just check out the app if you're not yet sure about the book and want to see what's on the content. 
And then there's the resources page that has the downloads I mentioned, how to create this peer learning. It's got links to a whole bunch of other books that I referenced, links to other free resources online, all of this on the website, thecareertoolkitbook.com. Mark, thank you for joining us, man. You were an excellent resource. We learned a ton from you. Thank you so much for coming on our show. Thanks for having me, guys. I've really enjoyed it. I want to close with one question, though, just, just to send it out. Since you've done so much work in development and leadership and helping out the young generation, best advice for the millennials moving forward and best advice to the zennials. Are we calling them zennials? Is that official? <laughs> Let's go with zennials for now. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Love to hear that as we close. If you are a millennial, recognize you're still early enough in your career. You should still think about career planning. Think about where you want to go in 10 or 20 years and create that path and execute on it. And that means not only, well, these are the jobs I want, but what are the skills you're going to need to get there? And this career plan should include what are the skill development steps you're going to take along the way to get you where you want to go. For the Xennials, certainly this same advice applies. Do everything I just said. You might be earlier in your career and not certain exactly where you want to go. Talk to everyone you can. Talk to people in different jobs and say, hey, tell me about your job. What is it you like? What is it you don't like? What do you actually do day to day? And at the same time, also pay attention to what are the trends that we see? We know, for example, Healthcare is a growing trend. We know environmental impact is a growing trend. So think about the different jobs out there and what sounds interesting and not. Think about what are the mega trends that might be impacting the job market to help you as you plan the direction you might want to go in your career. Because you're probably at a point you haven't necessarily fixated on an industry or particular path yet. You've been listening to the Free Retiree Show. So long for now. offered through Securities America Incorporated, member FINRA at www.finra.org, SIPC, www.sipc.org, a separate entity. Lee Michael Murphy is licensed for the California Department of Insurance, license 0H18660. Lee Michael Murphy is a investment advisor representative with Securities America Advisors, a registered investment advisor. The Free Retiree, Securities America Advisors, and Securities America Incorporated are separate entities. Career Advisor Sergio Patterson, Attorney Matt McElroy are not affiliated with Securities America Advisors or Securities America Incorporated. Securities America Advisors, Securities America Incorporated, and its representatives do not provide tax or legal advice. Therefore, it's important to coordinate with your tax or legal advisor regarding your specific situation. The content heard in this podcast is not intended to be tax, investment, or legal advice and is intended as general guidance only. You should contact your own tax advisor, financial advisor, or attorney to answer questions about your specific situation or needs before acting upon this information. Third-party source information or comments are not verified, may not be accurate, and are not necessarily representative of all client or audience experience. A portion of this event was paid by a third party. The opinions of career advisor Sergio Patterson do not reflect the opinions of LinkedIn Incorporated or Microsoft Corporation. The opinions of attorney Matt McElroy do not reflect the opinions of Castaneda and company.